Hello, and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Martin, president of Goslin Martin Associates. The High Reliability Podcast is brought to you by The Career Hub. To learn more about The Career Hub or to view the jobs that we are recruiting for here at Goslin Martin Associates, please visit our website at goslin-associates.com. With that brief commercial done, I'd like to uh, welcome our guest today to the High Reliability Podcast, Dr. Stephen Call. Dr. Call is a faculty member in the Voiland College of Engineering and Architecture at Washington State University, where his applied research program focuses on hospital facility management and cost optimization. Dr. Call possesses more than 15 years of professional experience leading and consulting real estate, construction, and facilities programs for corporations in healthcare, defense, technology, and manufacturing. Dr. Call has worked in hospitals in healthcare facilities management leadership, so he's got a nice eclectic career. Dr. Call completed his PhD in construction management at Arizona State University. I was actually watching the Arizona State-Arizona football game this past uh, weekend. I think it was on Friday. He has his Master of Science degree in real estate from Florida International University, and he has his Bachelor of Science degree in facilities management from Brigham Young University. Steve, welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. Oh, thank you, Pete. Appreciate it uh, and excited to be here. Excellent. I'm excited uh I'm excited for this uh, particular podcast, especially with Steve's background. Um, you may have listened. Our last podcast, last high, rel- high reliability podcast, was a roundtable that we um, had. It was called What Keeps You Up at Night? I'd encourage you to listen to it if you haven't. But I posted an excerpt from that podcast um, as an article on our Goslin Martin website. One of our guests for that roundtable, uh, Vance Vinson, who's the director of facilities management at Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton, Ohio, he mentioned that he had lost trade staff uh, to other industries over salaries. And um, when I posted that article on LinkedIn, Steve responded to that with a comment, this issue of inadequate pay isn't just a matter of opinion. My research data shows that FM pay, specifically in healthcare, is significantly below market in entry and mid-levels. This obviously exacerbates ongoing recruitment and retention challenges. So when Steve posted that, I reached out to him and we had a conversation and we thought, you know what, this would make um, a really good and timely podcast uh, topic. I know that we're going to be publishing our salary, uh, our survey from each uh, healthcare facilities management survey in the next week or so, and salary was certainly an issue for many of the respondents that we had. So I appreciate Steve making some time uh, to talk about this topic, because again, I know it's important to many of our listeners too. But before we talk about the salary component, let's just get to know Steve a little bit. Steve, as I said, you have a very eclectic career, interesting career, and I, I always love talking to people kind of about the the path that they followed and how they get to where they are. But let's just start at square one for you. Um, You have your bachelor's degree in facilities management. How did you decide on a facilities management degree? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm one of the few people that you'll meet in this world of facilities management that actually uh, 
wanted to be a facility manager when they were going through college. So uh, surprisingly, and, you know, at the time I, I was a student at Brigham Young University. I was, you know, I changed majors a couple times, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, luck, luckily for me, uh, BYU uh, had a facilities management program, uh, an undergraduate program. It actually just celebrated, uh, I think, 50 years as a program. So it's got a, a long history there. Um, some of your listeners might have graduated from that program. Uh, and uh, so started taking some classes, fell in love with it, didn't even know it was, a, you know, was really unfamiliar with the career, obviously, like many people are. Um, but it was a great foundation. Um, that that program, like many like many other facility management academic programs, are primarily uh, based on uh, with construct. They're partnered with construction management, so a lot of construction management courses, you know, and then some classes in facility operations and real estate, and then those sort of things that kind of rounded off the facilities part. And one of the one of the key kind of aspects of that program is is internship. So, uh, as a junior, um, you know, in that program, I actually took an internship at Pfizer Pharmaceuticals in La Jolla, California. That was not a hard sell to live in La Jolla if you've <laughs> never been there. Uh, but yeah. they R and D campus, and I was an intern, and I just you know was able to spend several months. Uh, you know, helping them um, operationally and with some construction projects, and that's really where I said this is this is definitely the, the job for me. Really fell in love with it, and um, and that's you know that's how I decided on the career was I, I re- was really unfamiliar with it, uh, but just kind of um, through some some fortunate events was able to learn about the program and, and graduate uh, with a bachelor's degree there from BYU. So the degree, um, the program at BYU in facilities management, did it did it look at a number of different careers in facilities management, not just healthcare? You mentioned you started at Pfizer. So was it pharmaceuticals? Was it healthcare? Was it manufacturing? Or was it just a combination of, of all? Yeah, good question. You know, the as you know, facility management is such a kind of a niche um, uh, field in, in and of itself. So the the program there wasn't necessarily um, focused on any particular industry, so students that graduate from that program, you know, go in all different kind of industries: hospitality, um, uh, corporate, right? There's there's quite a, quite a blend, um, both both in house and, and a lot of outsourced providers. So uh, hire from there as well. So yeah, it's not specific. Now I was actually really interested in healthcare because of my experience with. Um, with Pfizer, right, with clean rooms and air exchanges and some of the heavy redundant MEP systems. So that's what that's what really got me interested in healthcare. Uh, so that was more of my kind of interest versus a specialized focus. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, how did you transition from Pfizer into um, into healthcare? Well, the short answer is I, I would I would have loved to work for Pfizer, but they said, you know, which is funny. They hired me as an intern, but they said, well, we only hire PEs because it was a it was a facilities engineering focus. So even though they hired me as an intern, uh, they said, well, we really don't hire anybody full time unless you have a, an engineering license. So I thought, well, that's unfortunate because I really enjoyed it. But uh, I thought, well, maybe maybe healthcare is is, you know, somewhere that that kind of has some of that um Similar built environment, but maybe would be open to someone without an engineering degree, and so that that's kind of was the was the little slight pivot towards healthcare, which is um, what I did. Did you um, 
did you did you consciously um, did you think of these moves on your own or and I guess what I'm asking for is one of the things that people say and you may have seen find this in in your research Steve or you know you're certainly in the university environment that healthcare facilities management doesn't do it's it's just not mapped out it's not known um, there's not a lot of marking and there's a number of reasons for that right it's just <laughs> you're 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 busy all the time but did you it, it almost sounds like it was by happenstance that you fell into it as opposed to maybe seeing people recruiting in colleges and universities or people telling you about this prospective career path yeah that's a great question because um there was no, you know, there was no recruiters from healthcare coming and recruiting from those programs, from the mm. FM program. That was just my own decision that I was really interested in healthcare. And, and frankly, I, I was told multiple times, and this, and this is kind of what, you know, this is a good conversation because this is kind of what prompted my interest in this subject was I was trying to find a job in healthcare. I had a, a, a you know, a bachelor's degree in facilities management. I was actually working as I was going through college. I was actually working as a maintenance technician, so I had some <laughs> some hands-on experience. Um, but whenever I'd reach out to most folks in the healthcare world, uh, the common response was, "Well, you know, we don't even we never we never hire you know out of the universities. We, we want at least ten to fifteen years of of experience before we hire into a management role." So that that. Um, that was the common kind of position with, with most, most folks. L luckily, uh, I, I was hired, you know, I, uh, I was hired on at Texas Children's Hospital. Um, the leadership there, I think, were, were progressive in, in, and, uh, in their thinking and their recruiting strategy. And, and I was very fortunate to get a job uh, with Texas Children's Hospital. But uh, in general, I think that's, that's the challenge. Now, I know the industry folks a lot of times say, well, students just aren't familiar with you know, facilities management and healthcare. Um, the research is really saying no, they're familiar with it. The just the facts are that most companies or most healthcare organizations just simply aren't recruiting um, from FM academic programs. So that that's that's the short answer. That's interesting. I, I want to get into the research component of of what you do and how you do it and what your research is from. But also I I kind of like for our listeners to at least kind of know who you are and where you're coming from and that you're a gentleman who you know you're from this industry so you you're you're you kind of have that dual perspective of having worked on it and now you're now you're an academic who's who's researching it so it's a it's a uh it's a different type of a background that you bring how long steve did you work in healthcare facilities management at a management level uh so i was in healthcare fm for uh Three or four years um, was a was a kind of supervisor there at Texas Children's, and then was a facilities director for a medical center in the the um, Champaign Urbana area of Illinois. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, you know just had a it was a it was actually a um, an outsource. I was working for an outsource provider there, and some some contract challenges. And so I, I actually shifted gears. I ended up working for a defense contractor and some other industries. Uh, but when I was getting my PhD, I, I, I just kind of fell back on healthcare as my my primary focus for research just because I, I'd had that experience and I just saw so many opportunities to 
do some interesting research in Healthcare FM. And so that's kind of, it was kind of a full circle for me. You know, I started at Healthcare FM, uh, went to a few different industries, and, and now I'm kind of back full-time focusing on that as far as my research. Yeah, you worked for you worked as a facilities executive for for more than a direct for more than a decade. Excuse me. How did how did your career path lead you to academia and you know a faculty position at, at Washington State? How did that happen? Yeah, I wish I wish I could say that, that I always wanted to be a professor. That, that was never <laughs> on my radar whatsoever. I I was one of those uh, students that when I graduated with my my bachelor's degree, I kind of said I'll never I'll never step foot on a campus again. <laughs> So that was, had it, huh? Yeah, that was, you know, I, I I'd done my thing. I was ready to work and 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 start making money. And and I I, I thought I, I you know school. I was a, I was a you know an average student, but I didn't necessarily excel uh, in school. And I was happy to have my degree and move on. But as time went on, uh, I was you know moving up the the career ladder and um, enjoying myself. Uh, I had. The, the, the director, um, the chair of the FM program at BYU reached out to me. I happened to be living in Utah at the time. And he said, hey, I'd love you to come teach a, a class as an adjunct. <laughs> um, I thought that would be a lot of fun. And, and I really kind of um, fell in love with uh, you know, teaching and kind of giving back to the students I had that unique perspective of, of being an FM student and having that experience. And so I felt like I could really relate to what they were thinking and feeling and, and be able to share uh, that with them. So that was kind of the first step. Um, and then I thought, well, I don't really want to be a f- professor full time, but maybe maybe early retirement. And so I, I started a, a PhD program at Arizona State, thinking I'll take seven or eight years to kind of slowly chip away at this. But I but I just really enjoyed the research and opened my eyes to kind of a, a new world that I was not that familiar with and that it really accelerated things and um, just happened to, to get an opportunity. Uh, it came up uh, at Washington state and um, um, took the job and it's been, it's been wonderful. So I've been in academia full time here for, for a few years now and um, really enjoying it. How do you, it's, you know, this is probably the question I asked the most on this podcast because everybody comes to it with a different uh, career path. How do you view yourself? Are you an academic? Are you still the facility management professional? Are you a, an amalgam of all of that? How do you view you? So I, I view myself as uh, somebody who understands facilities management, um, but also understands the academic rigor of doing research that can help the industry. So that I, I, I kind of, that's how I see kind of the, the value I bring to the, the built environment or the FM world is someone who really understands the, the day-to-day challenges. And so I can, my research is, is directly um, addressing some of those, those real pain points that folks are feeling. So that's a unique, that's really a unique situation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously there, there are so very, very few facility management focused um, professors. And then I, I honestly, I don't know of, of really any that do exactly what I do, which is focused on healthcare facility operations. So it's uh, it's a unique kind of a unique position to be in. Yeah. How is the, um, 
relative to student enrollment, student interest within the program, how is it a popular program? Do students enroll? What are you, what are you finding? Well, so at Washington State, it's a construction management program. So I'm technically a construction management faculty. I teach construction management courses. Uh, I'm in the process of actually trying to start a facility management um, certificate here at the university. That, that takes some time. Um, and so, but I will say re- regarding some of the other FM programs out there, it, it, over the last decade, they've, they've about doubled in the number of FM programs. So there's definitely a, a, you know, a trend of growth for those programs. The general FM industry is really seeing that as a, uh, as a lifeline as far as mm-hmm. addressing some of the workforce shortages that everybody's dealing with, especially in facility management. And so that those programs are really growing quite rapidly. There's a lot of interest in, in that um, in that uh, program. Do you um, do you think it's how long does it take? I wanted to ask it. You know, do you think it's too little, too late? It's not too little, too late because you know we're still going forward. But <laughs> how long typically does it take for like a program to establish, but then to to kind of bring that pipeline into healthcare facilities management. Is there a lag on that? How long until it can kind of catch up? Well, that's that's the million dollar question, Pete. And, uh, and maybe we'll start talking a little bit about some specifics here, because if you look at the traditional uh, model of, of succession, right, when it comes to um, healthcare facility management, traditionally that's been uh, trade focused. Mm-hmm. So, you know, somebody will be in a, in a trade position. And, and by the way, this is, this is real data. They'll be in the position for about 12 years as either like maybe a trade or, or, or a general maintenance tech. Um, and, and they'll be promoted uh, into an entry-level management position after about 12 years. And then they're in that entry-level position for about five years before they're promoted to, to what I'll call a true kind of manager. And that, and that's, you know, and then a senior, senior level, you know, director, that, that's another, you know, that's another time frame. So that's, that's been the traditional model uh, of, of how that's been working. Um, the challenge with that model is, number one, it's becoming even, even difficult as well to hire and recruit tradespeople or, or maintenance technicians. So that, that pool of talent is actually shrinking as well. Secondly, uh, the motivation to man trades. Uh, persons are not generally that motivated to be managers, which is becoming more and more difficult. Uh, and so the, you know, that, that, uh, that model is, and so, right. Taking 17 years to, to train someone from when they come in to when they're a manager. And we've got uh, a wave of, of, um, facility managers and directors that are retiring. Right. <laughs> Probably should have hit, you know, I talk to people all the time. They're saying, I'm 70 years old and then I'm just, I'm just getting, you know, they're begging me to stay. Right. Just yeah. because there's no answer to this and, and they don't, the, the industry's struggling to address this succession issue. There's a, there's a number of challenges with this, but, but that's the big problem. So the question, I uh, hope I'm answering your question um, directly, but the question is, okay, well, what, how could, how could academia, we've got these FM programs um, out there how could they help with this? And if you look at the, look, you know, take healthcare out of it. If you look at the general FM industry, this was general FM industry about 10 years ago. 
And some of the initial research primarily was coming out of Arizona State University, was saying, hey, we, there's interest in, um, in hiring undergraduates. There, there's, let's grow these FM programs and see if they can help address this workforce shortage. Um, fast forward 10 years later, the, those programs are booming. They're high, you know, 100% job placement out of those programs. But healthcare is simply not hiring. I mean, they're very, very, very few. Like, uh, I think uh, I think the data was saying about three percent um, of those open entry level FM positions that are they're hired uh, directly from a university. So um, they're just simply the healthcare is simply not adopted that model as a solution to the workforce shortage. So only only three percent of those students coming out of the FM program, college FM programs, go the healthcare route. Is that what, is that what you said? Yeah. So the, the data is actually showing of, of the open, on average, of all the open available wow. uh, entry-level healthcare facility jobs, about 3% of them are filled by um, those coming directly out of college. Wow. That's... Um... So... So very, very few, very few uh, FM grads are actually going into healthcare. And why is that? Do you do you know? Does the research tell you why that is? Uh, there are some. Yes. So primarily, the big issue is pay. Mm. Um, on average, healthcare pays significantly less than other industries in in FM, to the tune of about you know so. Uh, and I'm not talking entry level, but I'll just say generally, like general entry, entry, um, entry level positions on average, um, are, are about 10%, 10 to 15% below market. So a student, a student coming out of the university, um, can make about $10,000 more, uh, by just simply not going to healthcare. So that's, that's a big issue, um. The other, the, the other issue is this kind of expectation that, that folks have years and years of, of trade experience to be a successful manager. Obviously, most students don't have you know, that, that background. Um, so there's a couple of big challenges of why that pipeline just simply isn't being used um, or leveraged by healthcare. And are those, those entry-level positions that you mentioned there, Steve, are they... At the trades level, at the, at the supervisory level, what what is an entry level position defined as? Yeah, and that and that varies depending on the size of the organization. So, really, we're talking about lo- only large healthcare systems are really in this market of being able to hire for what I'll call entry level. Because if you're a small hospital, right, you've got you've yeah. got maybe a lead tech, and then you've got a director. Yep. And there's there's really no middle, you know, entry level management type role. So we're really not even talking about that 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 structure that situation. So we're talking about large organizations where they have, uh, you know, maybe they have a um, a, a supervisor or a, a frontline manager, right? And then they have a manager and a director and a VP and a, you know, right? So they've got they've got multiple layers of management. Those are typically the typically the roles we're we're talking about when I say entry level. Interesting. How does, and, and I want to get back to this, but first I want to ask you a couple of questions about research for somebody who doesn't do, you know, research. Uh, what is applied research, Steve? And how, can you tell us a bit about 
how you go about conducting your research? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, applied research is really just saying um, that the research that, that, that is being done has a, has a direct application to the, to the problem, um, solving a problem for a company directly. Okay. Instead of kind of just doing research and then saying, well, this is interesting. How, how can we apply this? Or, you know, how, mm-hmm. how is this useful? We, we already know that, you know, so it's usually a direct kind of relationship with a, a hospital or with a company that's saying we've got a problem. And, and it's almost like a, a consultative approach to, to research. So that's that's the difference between, I'll say, you know, applied research versus general research. So everything I do is primarily working directly with with health systems. Um, and and, help, and helping them solve problems and, and coming up with some research methods that will help uh, you know uh, illuminate um, some solutions. Uh, you know, if you think about what is research, you know, kind of going back to you know middle school or high school and the, the scientific method. You know, it's just defining <laughs> what the problem really is. Um, you know, coming up with a hypothesis and then gathering some data to test and analyze. So um, it's 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 kind of a simple process, but the hard work really comes in, of, of, especially in healthcare FM, is where, how do I get the data, you know? So we talk about this idea of, of a workforce shortage. Um, and I've been going to, you know, uh, ASHI conferences for, for years and years. And, right, we all, we all hear the, the same kind of comment about, ah, well, what are we going to do to recruit right. and hire yes. the next generation? You know, we're all getting old and what do we Every you know? annual. <laughs> yeah. So every year, right? So um, that was one of the, so that's what prompted my initial research is like, well, obviously here's a problem. It's a big problem, but, but <laughs> yeah. nobody's ever, nobody's ever actually gathered the data. So, well, what does the data say? Like we say it's a problem. Well, how big is the problem? Um, what are the nuances with the problem? Like, are there any, are there any, you know, is the data showing that, oh, this is, this is, you know, hmm. solution. So that, that gathering of data is really, it's not hard to identify what the problems are in healthcare FM. It's just a matter of finding the data. So I spent a lot of time gathering data, analyzing it, and then trying to interpret it to come up with some, some, some findings to be helpful to the industry. So without, without giving away trades, trades secrets, how do you gather data and how long does it, take you together did how long does that process take yeah no 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 trade secrets here uh it just depends um for example uh some of it's public right so for example looking at i did some been doing some research on on cost benchmarking for example hospital cost benchmarking uh, both operational and capital and if you look at uh, most Department of Health websites, they, they have a lot of uh, hospital annual hospital information. So mm-hmm. utilization data, um, financial statements. So, so that, that data is not that hard to gather because it's, it's available. Most of it is um, uh, provided by uh, the company that, that is you know, interested in the research. Um, other times it's me doing surveys, right? Uh, with the workforce planning research was was several surveys nationally from ASHI members uh, that I reached out to. So it just depends, but it can take it can take um, months and months and months, especially with big surveys. Uh, and even if you have the data, like like through the Department of Health, you've got to kind of aggregate it and analyze that uh, in, in a way, and that that takes a lot of time. Even if you got the data to kind of 
weed your way through and pick out what you think is is, is critical. So the analysis piece takes takes months. So um, it's really a long term process. And yeah. then and then you know you spend months you know a year or two years on 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 a project. You come up and usually what it does it just leads to to new. Uh, to new questions, <laughs> which which is fun for me. I mean, that's again one of the reasons why I kind of went into this world is because it's it's intellectually it's so stimulating and it's it's really fun to identify solutions um, or even clarify problems that we're all feeling. Um, we just we just haven't had the the research to kind of validate it. Well, that's what I want to ask you um, relative to you talked about you were an okay student when you graduated, you never thought you'd go back to a college campus, but now you're, you, you if I had told you or somebody had told you, you're going to research and you're going to love it. What would you have said? And what is it about the research that's kind of sucked you in really, you know, that you enjoy, you know, that you enjoy doing, what is it about it that, that has just caught your fancy and you love doing it now? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of, uh, you know, I took a finance class at, uh, at BYU and, uh, you know, not, not afraid to say I got a C. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would have got a D. <laughs> <laughs> I got a C in the class. And by the way, I was thrilled to get out of there with a C, but, yeah, um, you know, but then I, yeah, but then I, you know, started my master's program in, in real estate finance and I, and I got A's and, and because it mm. was for me, I could, it wasn't, it wasn't abstract anymore. It was it was focused on something that I could I could comprehend and, and was kind of concrete for me, and so that's that's what I've I've really loved as far as why why I've kind of kept going is I finally found you know my passion about oh okay I love I love facilities and construction and real estate and and now this this these these tools that are available now make sense to me right if somebody just handed me a tool and I didn't know how to use it I'd be like what's this all about and so that's that's been really fun. And that's what I try to do actually a lot of time with my students is make sure that everything I teaching them, they can see how it's, you know, how it's useful with, you know, the type of careers that they're trying to, they're trying to pursue. Um, and uh, research is just, it's never ending. It, it's, it, there's always something that I can be exploring. So it never gets bored. Uh, it never gets boring. I don't get bored with it. Um, it's just this process of discovery um, discovering new things, new information that that's helpful for others. And I find it fascinating and really, really enjoyable. I, I tend to get, um, you know, I tend to get bored quite frequently if I do the same thing over and over again. But, but with research, that's never, never a problem, which is, which is why it's worked well for me. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. It's, you know, talk about finding your passion. I, as you were talking, I just thought to my, my brother owns a funeral home and, mm -hmm. um, he was a big Paul would, would, he was a terrible student, hated school, you know, graduated high school. And it's like, I'm never going back to school again. Left to guard. He didn't know what he was going to do, but he knew he hated school. Yeah. And he ended up, you know, we had a family friend who had a funeral home and Paul went in there to, uh, to see what it was all about and loved it. Went back to school, got his degree in that and has been doing it for, you know, 35 years now. So you're really right. If you can connect what you like, you know, you find that passion, school becomes easy. Um, uh, it's interesting. I always like to hear how people kind of fall into what they're doing. So you've mentioned, um, <clears throat> a couple areas of research that you you've done, Steve, you know, cost benchmarking, um, salary, what other relative to healthcare facilities management, what are, what are your areas of research? 
you know, those are the two, I guess I'll call main areas are, are workforce planning and then, you know, operational excellence, which is kind of what benchmarking falls in, into. And then within workforce, uh, you know, it's, it's training and development. Um, it's, it's <clears throat> identifying, for example, we talk about, um, and I mentioned that it takes 12 years for a maintenance technician to be, you know, what I'll say, you know, ready or, or, um, or skilled, sufficiently skilled to, to move into a management position. Um, so the question is, okay, well, what, what are those, instead of, instead of just saying, okay, you've been around for a decade, you've hopefully you've learned through osmosis what you need to do to be a manager. The real question, for example, some of my research is saying, well, what are the competencies? What are the specific skills? And so is there a way to kind of accelerate this, this learning process? If we know these are the 10 skills that you need to know, then we can actually put together some training programs and some assessments where we can accelerate this development process. And so that's just an example, one example of, you know, this big umbrella of workforce planning, um, some, some research that I do that, to help um, with, this, with this concept. I want to go back to that 12 years that you mentioned, um, you know, to, to, to move on. Is that, and I don't even know if it's a fair question, and I don't know how you, you measure it, but it, is that 12 years, why is it that long? You know, is it is it because the industry is slower to adapt? Is it because that's the actual learning curve? And you just talked about trying to accelerate that. But twelve years to me seems like a long time. Is it? And if it is, why is it that length of time? Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm in a position to say it's is too long or too short. But what I will say is the industry has not really accepted the idea that. Um, you know, here are the clear skills that are necessary to be a entry level facility manager in, in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the key. So whether it's you know 10, 12, five years, I, I don't know what the right or wrong answer is because the reality is is those those folks are doing a, a job that's important in those 12 yeah. years. So they're they're, right. they're you know they're making repairs, they're maintaining, they're doing their thing. It just happens to be on average, it's taking them about you know, 12 years before they're promoted. The real, the real um, kind of important piece in this is also the, the five years. So you're saying, I'm saying when you get to that first entry level job in management, it still takes you five more years as like a, you know, frontline type entry level manager before you're what I'll I'll say a a true, you know, a management position. It takes about five years. Um, What's fascinating about that is if you look at those folks who are coming up through the trades with 12 years of experience, it takes them the same amount of time to be promoted to their, to receive their next promotion as it does somebody that was hired directly from a, from a university in a built environment program. So that's fascinating to me, right? Cause you're saying somebody with zero work ex- prior work experience is being promoted at the same um, the same time frame as somebody with 12 to 15 years of experience in the healthcare setting. So that's that's really fascinating um, uh, because what it's saying is, well, maybe maybe you don't need 10 years of trade experience to be successful as a facility manager. And if that's the case, then there are some other succession models that we should probably be looking at to pull from uh, uh, pull from a bigger pool of, of candidates. 
Yeah, that isn't that's interesting. Do you have any insight as to why that may be? Um, well, I've done some research that actually shows what those competencies are. Um, and I think there's 10 of them. And there's no there's no perfect candidate. So right. you know, the top the top one is um, you know regulatory uh, and compliance. And then it's, uh, you know, systems and there's, you know, project management and there's conflict resolution. There's, there's, there's about 10 kind of key competencies. And so, you know, you'll bring, you'll bring uh, a technician in, right, that's been around for a decade that has really good experience with, uh, with, with systems, with building systems. But they're probably just as unfamiliar with the regulatory and compliance as somebody pulled out of college. Uh, they may not have some of the the finance and budget experience. You know, they may actually be the, the, somebody coming from a university may actually have stronger skills in other areas like finance and budgeting or or uh, you know conflict resolution, whatever it might be. So there's always going to be gaps. So in general, I would say you find the best candidate. You know, they're probably going to have seven out of ten of those competencies, but you're always going to have to you're always going to have to do something to fill those gaps, whether it's somebody from the trade or whether it's somebody from the university, they're just going to be different competencies that you're going to have to fill. So on average, it's taking about the same time, regardless of where they're coming from. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, you, you, your sentence there, there is no perfect candidate. And that's one of the, um, that's one of the things that we, we talk to our clients about all the time. Listen, we all want 10 out of 10, all of us, but that just doesn't exist. And I don't know, do you, do you agree with this? I find sometimes that organizations have been slower to accept that fact that there are no perfect candidates and that they don't always look at the reality of the market and they're still focused on that 10 out of 10, that perfect candidate. And Hey, I would love to, to get them for you. We would all, but we can't create them. So what do folks have and how do you backfill for what they may not have to bring them up to where you need them to be and they want to be? Do you find that's true that you know, too often we're seeking the perfect candidate as opposed to looking at the reality of the marketplace? Uh, yeah, I think I think that's something that we all do, right? We, we kind of we shoot for perfection. And exactly. um, yeah. now the difference is I feel like in healthcare FM is if you're, let's just, let's just kind of start at the beginning here say kind of entry-level managers, you know, how, how do we find good entry-level managers? Um, it, you know, if, if I'm an accounting firm, I go, I go make a big push to recruit some accountants, <laughs> mm -hmm. the accounting program. Or if I'm, I'm a law firm, I go down to, you know, the, the local law school and I recruit for law students. We, we don't do that in in healthcare fm unfortunately and so i think that's part of the struggle is that there are some the the pro, the profession has matured in that we we still we know there, there's still tremendous value in in building operations as an emphasis but there's a lot of other areas when it comes to business um data analytics right some of those things that that um there's always going to be gaps. So that's, I, I agree with you. Um, and that's, I think there's some, there's still, there's still some, you know, some, some school of thought that, you know, this, this is the model that we've always used. And, um, 
if you don't have you know these specific things that I want, then everything else you bring to the table is not important. So I agree with you. We do need to do a better job of opening up kind of our our um, our perspective on you know what are some other skills that are coming in that could be beneficial. Yeah, but again, the other challenge is even if even if that's the case, and they say, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna you know healthcare fam, we're, we're all gonna decide that we're gonna be open to bringing in people of different backgrounds and experiences. The fact is that we just don't, we just don't pay enough to attract the best talent. Yeah, the I was going to go somewhere else. Yeah. I want to, 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 to get to that, Steve, or to, you know, you mentioned salaries and the pay disparity between healthcare FM and other areas. What can you tell us uh, about salaries? What is your research telling you? What is it finding? Yeah, the re- I mean, the, the the research is showing that for entry level positions, um, there's a statistically significant um, lower amount of pay for healthcare versus non healthcare in the world of facility management. So that's well, right right off the bat, we're we're kind of healthcare FM is starting at a huge disadvantage because we're not able to recruit the best the best talent. Could I could I ask you, Steve, just to um... When you, what are the, some of the under other industries that you're me- measuring healthcare FM against? Is it pharmaceuticals, manufacturing? Is it all all others, or is there it, anything? In- it's all others. So you okay. think about really any other industry. And and by the way, this data is coming from uh, a large um, national, you know, uh, thousands of, of respondents from a large national survey. So um, there, there's a good good strong sample size um, from from mixture of numerous different industries but the, the the primary industries that hire facility managers are uh, government um, and healthcare I think is third or fourth and then there's kind of general just general industry so healthcare is one of the largest you know employers of facility managers so that's it is well represented um, but yeah so that you know that's that's a challenge. Um, and even at the mid-level, even though it's not s- statistically significant, you're still seeing about an eight to 9% difference between, you know, lower pay for, for healthcare FM. It's not until you move into the senior level roles in healthcare FM, you actually see that, that they're competitive again. Um, and so that, that's kind of an interesting, interesting, um, trajectory that it's kind of low pay, low pay, low pay. And then once you get to a senior level role, it actually, it actually matches um, the rest of the industry. Is a senior level role, and I know, you know, job titles are a dime a dozen these days, but I guess are senior level roles, VP level roles? I would consider senior level in a traditional sense, um, like, uh, you know, and again, it just it depends on the size of the organization, but it yes, um, yeah. it's more of like yeah, more of like a senior director, assistant okay. VP, VP. That's really where you see that kind of big shift. Okay, okay. And and I, I think I asked this, but I just want since we're talking about salaries, is does research tell you or does it give you clues as to why there's a disparity? It does. So one of the most interesting. Um, finding is, and by the way, we, you know, these are lumped together. Some, some ways we kind of organize these, you know, mid senior is also by, you know, what, what they manage as far as operational budget, right. To make mm-hmm. sure that it's not just mm-hmm. somebody clicking a button says they're, they're senior. And 
So it's saying, hey, what are the, you know, they're all kind of following that same line. So a senior level a healthcare facility manager, for example, um, annual operating budgets around $6 million. Okay. And the mid levels around $3 million and the entry level is about 500,000. So that that's maybe a better way to think about it instead of just pure titles. So you can yes. say, okay, well, how much am I managing budget and staff and those sort of things? And so, so my question was, okay, well, uh, is, is non-healthcare or, or non-healthcare industry, are they, you know, is, what, is there, what, is there some reason why, you know, they're, they're paying more? Is it because they, they have more budget responsibility? Is it because they work more? Is it, what is it? And the, the reality is they're, 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 they're pretty much the same. So that's not really a factor. Um, what you will notice though is, um, and I'll say, I'm not talking about comparing the industries, but healthcare, a mid-level healthcare facility manager um, has about the same level of responsibility as the senior level. So, you know, they're about uh, three to 4 million in operation budget and a senior level is about six. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's not a huge difference, but there's a huge difference in pay. But what we're finding is the big issue is education levels. So what it's, what seems to happen is that, you know, there's a roadblock as far as succession or opportunity for growth within a, a healthcare organization for a lack of an undergraduate degree. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so that's where you see like these mid-level folks that have 20 years of experience. They, they manage fairly big budgets, but they're just not getting over that threshold to the higher pay because of this issue with um, undergrad education. And the senior level don't, they don't have any more, you know, any more levels of, of, uh, of master's degrees. It really is that bachelor's degree level that seems to be the big, you know, the big, uh, the big finding there. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. You know, cause we, we talk about education all the time and, you know, the necessity for the degree and how, you know, I, how folks with, 25 years, 20, 25 years of experience at a director level, you know, have, have done it in hospitals, how it's increasingly more difficult for them to move higher because they don't have the degree. But here is your research saying in that, 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 that degree is a significant financial hurdle to overcome. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really showing that if you don't have a bachelor's degree, you kind of limit your growth potential, which which makes sense to all of us. Yep. Yep. Um, but it but because of the traditional, um, because of healthcare's traditional uh, succession model of kind of growing up through the trades, and and most you know most folks that do have a bachelor's degree typically have gone back to school, right? They're working full time, and they're like, man, I I need that bachelor's degree. And they go back to school, which which is challenging. It's challenging for anybody. Yeah. You know, they have a family. They're working full time, um, and other industries are more open to hiring. You know, folks with bachelor degree as at, at universities. So that that's that's one of the big differences. We've you've talked about in your research. You know, has pointed to the salary disparity. Has your research or have you been able to discern a salary trend in healthcare facilities management? Um, n- no, I, I don't have necessarily trends as far as, um, as far as that goes. So I don't 
don't have much to say on that one, Pete. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no problem. I was just, I was just thinking as we were um, talking. Do you, do you, from your data, and again, your your um, your your research data point, we talk about salaries. Is salaries the number one issue facing healthcare facilities management? Do you think? And I'm taking the the gray tsunami off because the gray tsunami is impacting yeah so many different areas. So if we eliminate that. From your research, are salaries the number one issue facing facilities management and healthcare? When it comes to workforce, uh, I, I do think that is is probably the, the biggest factor, but it's very closely related to this issue of education, like we just mm. talked about. So, um, what what and and the the beauty of the research that I'm doing is is my goal in this is actually to empower facility leaders. Not not necessarily on an individual level, like hey, I, I should be paid more, and you know, you know, get near your boss. But it's really on on an organizational level to say, hey, there's some real research out there that's specific to healthcare facility management, um, and you know, and you can look at it by region to say, you know, we're we're probably you know probably show that that the organizations are their banding maybe off, and so that's what I'm hopeful that will happen from this is is this issue of salaries, which is a huge roadblock from to attract the best and the brightest into the, into the profession. Hopefully this information will be helpful. The other thing is, is again, like I mentioned is, is education. So it's really important that we, um, you know, that that's a major roadblock, right. To, to kind of um, long-term income levels is, is making sure that our folks are, are getting opportunities to get their their bachelor degree specifically getting that undergraduate education and so creating you know looking for either either the industry says hey we need to we need to create something that works either it's an online program or whatever it is right so so there's a couple things that can can that can be done to address these big topics but i think those two are so interrelated that it's important to, to think about yeah, great. I, and I want to go back to one of the things you said about degree to make sure I, that I heard it correctly, or maybe just amplify it a bit. Did you say that the research shows that there's not a huge difference relative to salary from the bachelor's degree to the um, to the graduate degree? Correct. So if if you see if you look at mid level and senior level roles, there's not a there's not a statistically significant mm-hmm. difference, right? And that's interesting. And um, so it's not like, oh, it's because these senior level folks all have masters. That's not the case. Hmm. Um, it's not what appears to be driving this the salary increase. It actually seems to be more related to an undergraduate education versus a master's degree. So the, the challenge in this is a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of facility managers have been in the industry. They get promoted. You know, they're, they they need that bachelor's degree, but then they're many times in a rural area. They don't, yeah. you know, they don't have access to a uh, a degree program um, because there are no online facility management degrees. And so th- if they do get an online degree, it's typically in business or, or some liberal arts degree, which, which, which is interesting because in healthcare, if you look at the type of degrees people have, um, they're almost twice as likely to have a liberal arts degree if you're a healthcare FM versus non-healthcare FM. And so then you go back to say, well, what are the skills that we should be teaching? Um, you, you know, you could argue that there, you know, a liberal arts education specific 
to a healthcare facility manager would, would probably not be checking the boxes on the, a lot of those, um, those key competencies. So there's, there's some challenges there. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I would just put a plug in for Mike Canales, who's been a, a podcast guest a couple of times uh, at Owensboro Community Technical College, who's, who's developing the FM track um, for the associate's degree. Yeah. Um, you want to go back, not not you, Steve, but and listeners in general. I had Mike on probably in August, right after the Ashy, and Mike Mike is the program lead for Owensboro Community Technical College. Um, and again, you guys are both fighting the fighting <laughs> fighting the battle. Steve, how is your um, how is your mess not messaging? How do organizations receive your research, and and what do they when you're working with them? What do they say to you about? your data? Do they acknowledge it? Do they push back on it? How's your messaging? How's your research received? Uh, you know, I do a lot of, um, a lot of presentations. So I've, mm-hmm. I, I've done numerous kind of, uh, Ash, affiliated ASHI chapters, um, uh, all over the, the, the nation. And so that's usually, you know, very well received because these are, these are subjects that everybody's kind of struggling with. Yeah. Um, the, the, the good news is a lot of this data, um, uh, is is actually uh, if IFMA is actually so if you look at some of the recent IFMA reports so IFMA the new IFMA's global compensation report mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the IFMA healthcare O and M benchmarking report so uh, I have uh, uh, either advised or been a lead uh, researcher on that report so it, you know those are that that. That information is available, right? Through if yeah. you, you can download the report and you can get all the information you want. So that that's been a nice feature as well. But I always tell people ah, if you want the typically, and this research usually ends up being published as an act, you know, a, a peer-reviewed journal, and it's not always the easiest way to consume this information is reading a, an academic journal. Um, but <laughs> right. but so I say, hey, you know, happy to meet with most folks that you know, fifteen-minute conversation and. Um, and it's usually a, a positive experience. So that's, I guess, to answer your question. I think most people are very interested in the research. Um, and, and it's usually specific to one area of the research. And I can usually just talk through it with them. Or, or when I presented Ashley, I had a lot of folks come up and we have good conversations. So I think the word's getting out that uh, you know, I'm doing research in this area. I, you know, I started in academia right when COVID hit. And then every, you know, everything kind of shut down. So it's only been probably a year and a half where I've really kind of been out on the trail, you know, letting people know what research is out there. So I think the momentum's growing and the interest is growing and um, that's good news. That's what I wanted to ask you. How long have you been doing this research? Yeah. So uh, my, my dissertation for, for my PhD was, uh, was healthcare FM workforce um, related. So that started, uh, you know, what is that? Five, six years ago. So I've been, I've been doing this for about five or six years as far as doing um, healthcare FM research but more and more keeps coming out. So I usually produce a, a paper or two every year on a different aspect of the research. And um, But as far as getting the word out and kind of speaking at conferences, it's only been probably a year and a half uh, of me doing that. So it's kind of I'm still trying to get my name out there and what I'm doing. And um, so far, it's, it's like, like I said, it's been it's been a lot of fun. How long does uh, and this is just a general question relative to research and maybe it depends upon what you're researching, but. You know, I know that it takes, you alluded to it, it takes a while to do research and to, you know, come up with the trends, et cetera, et cetera. But how long is 
typically um, the information relevant for? You know what I mean? Is does it is it does it change every two years, three years, or you know, once you if you've been working for two to three years on something and then you publish, do, do you start again because that the the, uh-huh. the information is always changing? Yeah, I mean, um, the good news. Well, I say the good news. I guess the good news and the bad news is is historically there has been almost no like no uh, information on on <laughs> yeah. on healthcare yeah. FM. Right? There's nothing. Yep. Yep. So, so at least there's something now. Um, yes. So I'm not in a huge like, for example, this compensation data uh, that was published. Um, I want to say it was this year, right? So I could say, well, every year, you know, with inflation, you know, it mm. we should maybe. But but for me, I'm like, there's there's bigger topics to go address uh, right now. But um, so I, good question. I don't know what the right response to that is, other than I'm trying to kind of get a lot of the low hanging fruit, some of the big mm. topics, and and coming up with some some good framework for people that are interested in addressing the, you know, the succession challenge that we're all facing and addressing some of the high level benchmarking questions we all have. And so um, I, 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 I think I'll probably revisit some of this stuff every couple of years, every three or four years. Okay. Did, have you found, um, is there, what other issues are there in healthcare facilities management that your data is is telling you? Is, Is there a second behind Salaries that you've identified. What are some of the other uh, big issues facing the discipline? Um, you know, I think the 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 biggest issue that I'm dealing with right now is is how, as facility managers, we can do a better job explaining how we add value to the organization or how facilities, the operational side of facilities, is impacting the financials of the business that we're working for. So that for me, that seems like there's such a large um, gap in how we can, how we communicate. You know, we do, we do a really good job job operationally of of making sure our buildings are running and they're reliable uh, and they're maintained, but communicating that, uh, that value to the C-suite is, is always been a little bit of a, of, of a gap or a bridge that I'm hoping to, 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 you know, to build. Um, and so that, that's why I do a lot of work on, on benchmarking and some of those things where, where it can help give some tools to facility managers to use as they say, well, Hey, this is, you know, this is my budget. This is maybe where I should be right. in developing those business cases. How did, um, and I agree with you that that's that that's an issue. How did you find? Uh, how did you determine that that that's an issue? When I say how did you determine that? How how did you determine that kind of advocating and 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 expressing the value you provide that facilities provides to the higher level? How did you uh, how did you come to find that? I guess what what data showed you that or told you that? Yeah, and that was more um, kind of the beauty or the 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 um, benefit of me. Have, having been in the industry for so long yeah. yep. is I, I saw that when I was working as a facilities director, as a, as a, you know, head of global real estate, that's where I, you know, working in the finance departments of, of large multinationals, that's when I really kind of honed the skill to be able mm-hmm. to do that. And I thought, wow, this is something that uh, I don't think most facility managers really do well, nor did I, frankly, it took me a long time to develop that. But I, but I had, luckily I had, you know, a, 
uh, a bachelor degree in a facility management, a master's degree in, in real estate finance. So I, I had those tools. So it's kind of been a, a a vision of mine getting into the industry when I'm teaching, and I actually teach a class on kind of the finances and accounting in the built environment. So it's uh, it's just one of those areas that I've, I've felt like I've had a strength in, and it's yeah. unique, and that I just see a huge need for uh, in the industry. So that's that's kind of where that came about. And then benchmarking was just one of those things where you say, hey, how long is that date about? Well, the last bench before before I um, was an advisor for the IFMA report that came out in 2020, uh, it was like 2014. It was the last time anybody benchmarked anything. So uh, that that's kind of where it all stemmed from. Yeah, that's a while now. <laughs> completely, completely different world from 2014. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> you wrote, um, Stephen, and... Just for our listeners, I am speaking with Dr. Stephen Call from Washington State University. Um, you wrote, early research findings show if a hospital is in a state of deferred maintenance, it comes at a high cost in the form of 150 plus percent higher annual plant equipment capital spending. Helpful information for healthcare facility professionals in making the case for appropriate budgets. How big of an issue? is deferred maintenance, capital dollars, and kind of, and you just alluded to it, talking about finance and then making that finance case. Well, if you look at, even if you look at the, you know, the American Hospital Association, what some of their key, you know, concerns are, it's, it's aging infrastructure. And so that, I guess I should have, I should have mentioned that as one of the, yeah, one of the big <laughs> struggles. And, um, is this issue of aging infrastructures? This is this is huge. Um, yeah. It's not just related to healthcare, but uh, but health you know healthcare is is our world, so we talk about healthcare. But that's a that's a big issue, and so the struggle has been uh, an end. So the struggle has been well, how do we get enough you know enough resources to address this? Uh, you know, there, there seems to be right. There's such a current pressure for profit margins within healthcare that even getting basic operational budget is, has been a challenge for most facility managers and then let alone enough to, you know, keep up with some of the deferred maintenance things. So it's a big challenge. And, and that's a subject that I know that um, you, you've probably, you know, had some, some folks talk about before, but the, you know, so my, my goal in this is when I was doing, operational benchmarking, and I'd say, okay, well, based on your various utilization metrics, this is how many, you know, maintenance staff you should have. And these are out of that maintenance staff, this is how many electricians and plumbers, and this is how much you should be spending on utilities and, um, you know, on, uh, you know, maintenance, right? And, and a lot of the, the hospitals I was working with, uh, well, actually, one specifically I was working with in North Carolina said, well, is there any way you can help us understand how much we should be spending on capital. And so that's what prompted me to do some research to say, okay, we, we kind of intuitively know that if, if we're maintaining our buildings successfully, that we'll be saving capital money down the road, right? So an easy way to think about that is we've got a car and we're saying, if I just stop maintaining it, if I just stop changing the oil, yeah, I'm going to save some money operationally, but I'm going to have to replace the engine, you know, in a, in a pretty quick. Right. Right? So, so at the end of the day, it, it actually, um, 
you know, it helps me on cash flow, but it doesn't help me as far as total cost. So that's, that's in theory, we all understand that, but there had never been any data that shows, right, that, that if I spend this much, if I invest this much money in, in operation, you know, operational expense for my facility, it will save me X number of dollars on capital. And so that you can actually justify through an ROI that the money I'm asking for to increase my maintenance will actually save me money. So um, what I found in, in that research is that there actually is a linear relationship between you know, operating expenses and capital expenses. You can predict an ROI based on where you fall below that uh, benchmark. But I found that those hospitals that that were um, were below what they should have been spending on on operating expenses were almost you know were what about five times as much money on capital costs. So that's kind of all related to that comment about really the end of the day, if, if we're not, if we're in a state of deferred maintenance, if we're not spending enough operationally on our, on our facilities, um, we are, we are spending five times more money down the road on capital. And so those are the type of tools that I'm hoping, you know, facility managers can use to say, well, Hey, I'm feeling all this pressure to cut my costs, cut my staff, you know, where where can I find something? Where can I find a tool or a report or something that can help me explain to my CFO that no, no, I do. I not only do I need my budget, I need a little, maybe a little bit more. So that that's part of um, part of the the, the world I'm, I'm researching at the moment. Well, I was going to ask you where would somebody go, and as we come up uh, towards the end here, though, where would somebody go to find out more information? based on what you've talked about during the podcast, Steve, where, where can they find out more about what you're doing and how you're doing it? So you can, you can, I, I typically, I do a lot of um, ashy presentations on, on cost benchmarking. So I talk a lot about this. So if you attend your, uh, you know, your, your chapter meetings, I, I good chance I'll be there at least, you know, once every couple <laughs> of years, but if you don't want to wait around, I mean, I've, um, uh, I would say just reach out to me. Um, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, or you can find me at Washington Washington State University School of Design and Construction website. You can find my contact information. But I, I love just having good conversations with folks that are curious about the research. And um, I, I have some, um, you know, the other interesting part about research is you do the research, and then uh, you know you write uh, a peer reviewed journal paper that takes years to get published. So I don't have a <laughs> I don't have like a paper. I have some drafts that I can talk about and send, but I don't, unfortunately on that subject, I don't have a, a, a published paper yet, but it's in the works. I was going to say everything that you do. I mean, there's a rigor to it and it doesn't happen overnight. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, some of the workforce stuff, you know, that's all been published, but it usually takes a couple of years from when I start to when I actually have a paper. And Let me ask you, Stephen, I'm, I'm speaking to Dr. Stephen Call, faculty member of the Voiland College of Engineering and Architecture at Washington State University. As you may have deduced, um, Steve's research focuses on hospital facility management and cost optimization. But I want to ask you, you know, we're so um, closely tied into the healthcare facilities management world. Based on your research or even your work with IFMA, how similar are the challenges in facilities management outside of healthcare, say pharmaceuticals. And I don't know if you've, if you have any insight or have done research into it, but, you know, similar to 
FM and academia at a university level or pharmaceuticals or manufacturing, are people facing the same thing relative to the challenges? Um, I think everybody's experiencing similar, you know, similar challenges, but I do think that they are uh, compounded in healthcare because of the environment, right? The life safety component of healthcare. So, you know, if we have a workforce shortage at a university, yeah, it's, you know, um, it's a problem, but it's life or death at a hospital. So um, I, I, the other challenge, I think, is just margins. You know, you work for a tech, tech company that's pulling 20, 30 percent margins. And if you need some some money to do a project, you, you've got it right. Yeah. Healthcare, it's there's just there's just the money just doesn't seem to be as as easily, you know, there are some systems that, that are pretty, um, you know, pretty generous with their capital funding and things like that. But overall, I would say it's just, a, it's an environment where there's just limited resources. There's a lot of competition internally, right? <clears throat> Between spending money on facilities or buying the next fanciest uh, uh, MRI machine or whatever it might be. So that it's just, a, it's a more challenging environment. That is for sure. Last question, any prediction, I'm not trying to put you on the spot and you can certainly say I have no predictions whatsoever, but you have, based on your research and based on what you've been doing, Steve, any prediction for the future of healthcare facilities management? Yeah, I mean, I'll, and I'll stick to the topic of kind of workforce is, um, you know, we've, we've got, like you said, a gray tsunami. And um, I think a couple things are going to happen because it's going to hit. Um, I think it hasn't fully hit yet because we just have people that are hanging on a little bit longer than maybe they had planned. Um, um, I think a couple things. Number one, managers are going to have to manage more. So instead of hiring the guy that just retired or the gal just retired, they're just going to say, okay, well, now you've got 50% more work, right? You've got more area to manage. You've got more people to manage. So I think facility managers and healthcare are just going to have to, are going to end up managing more staff and more a budget than, than they have historically. And then secondly, um, I think outsource providers are going to start taking a chunk out of, uh, or grow, grow the outsource market's going to grow just simply the, to the fact that there's so many, um, systems, especially rural systems that just don't have a succession plan in place, but you can't just not have a facility director. So they're going to, they're going to have to look which, which, those outsource providers, that's that's their business is, is developing people. That's typically not the focus of a hospital, or if it is, it's focused on the medical staff, not on the not on the facility staff. So you'll probably see outsource providers taking a, a, a more and more prominent role in in, in healthcare facility management. Uh, and then lastly, uh, I do think you'll see as the as the industry continues to mature and the expectations of what a facility manager is and what a facility manager does, that there's going to be more of an openness to hiring folks that are outside of healthcare um, and, and hiring from facility management programs as a, as a good sustainable pool of talent. So those are a few of my predictions based on, you know, my research and kind of what I've seen. Yeah. Nope. Those are excellent. It's funny as you were talking about your 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 second one, 
you know, the, the rural, um, you know, the rural hospitals and those challenges. So I said, we're releasing our survey again, much smaller than what you're doing. But I was talking to one of the directors who responded and he's at a rural hospital. And he said to me almost exactly what you just said. He said, it is so hard for us to compete against those major markets. I can't offer them the salary. I don't have the built in, you know, I don't have the built in, um, employee workforce. And he was just saying it's it's constantly on his mind and he's trying to create that succession planning and he's trying to create that bench, but the ruralness of his location really works against him. Yeah, there's definitely a challenge. Um, and like, and, and just based purely based on the structure of the organization, usually they don't, they don't have an option to have an extra FTE for a year or something to transition. So it is because of the budget constraints, you know, it really, a lot of it comes back to that. Uh, and then yeah. you would say, well, why don't, why don't, why don't, why don't, why don't organizations just spend a little bit more money on, on training and development? It's just, it just comes down to that. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough, tough situation. It is. Dr. Stephen Call, I appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you for, uh, thank you for appearing. Thank you, Pete. It was a pleasure. And uh, we'll hopefully talk again soon. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely do a follow-up. Thank you all for listening to the High Reliability Podcast. We will be back with another episode before the end of the year. I'm Peter Martin from Gossel Martin Associates. As always, I appreciate you listening to the High Reliability Podcast.